And we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 318, aka Year 7, Week 16, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I am your host, Mr. Richie Rich, along with MC. And since we're on Clubhouse now, that's where to find us, uh, starting rooms on our personal channels, because we're still not allowed to create, uh, what is it, groups or clubs yet. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, I'll give it out early, even though I always give it out at the end. Uh, find us on the Telegram, tele- uh, t.me slash anarchist experience or t.me slash the anarchist experience. It's a good place to also follow along. Uh, aside from that, how are you doing this week, MC? I'm doing great. Not much in the news. Um, so I've got headlines and I don't know if this is more conducive to the clubhouse model. Um, but I've got like more, I want to say intellectual type headlines to start. And then the, you know, the random, uh, government does bad stuff to people news headlines at the end there. So headline, the very notion of leadership is one is one of an abject failure of individual responsibility. I thought that was pretty catchy. Here's another catchy one. Headline, escaping serfdom. Uh, Headline, Jonestown 2.0 racism edition. Radical anti-Semites crowdfund $65,000 for doomed city in Colorado mountains. Uh, Headline, more government and spying and lying. Uh, Headline, how trillions in newly printed money created a labor shortage. Uh, and I would have moved that one to the top if we had uh, KS on with it because I really I wanted I wanted to read that because it's been like that's been a big topic for quite some time and now it's you know starting to pan out a little bit. Uh, headline: Creators of robot robot drug dealing service, excuse me, creators of robot drug dealing service on Telegram, jailed for selling kilos of cocaine. Uh, headline: City shuts down little girls threatens them for selling their chickens eggs to neighbors. Uh, again, city fines, headline, city fines elderly man $30,000 and threatens to steal his home because his grass was too tall. Too tall. Uh, court upholds fines as constitutional. And finally, from uh, one of the members in the Telegram group, that's why I gave it out ahead of time, through this one in there, the U.S. government's debt-to-GDP ratio is worse than Greece's before the 2008 crash, and it's about to get worse. Uh that's the order that I would go in, but it, did anyone stand out in your mind, MC? Um, I like good news. So how about $65,000 town in Colorado, somebody's crowdfunding? Is that what I heard? Uh, you did hear that. And, I, you know, this could be one of those good news, bad news, <laughs> depending, on, depending on your perspective. So Jonestown 2.0 Racism Edition, Radical Anti-Semites. Might have missed that oh, part. No. Radical anti-Semites crowdfund $65,000 for Doom City in Colorado Mountains. A band, into the article, a band of anti-colonial and racist activists have quote-unquote liberated land high in the Colorado Mountains to build a utopian city for minorities. Commenters are expecting a rerun of the Jonestown cult, but with more anti-Semitism. Openly com- communist, overtly anti-white, and proudly anti-Semitic, the Black Hammer organization isn't afraid uh, of a fight. The group's Twitter account fires off hourly incentives against the cave beast white race it sees as colonizers. 
And again, and against the Jewish people, it accuses of funding the pig departments and prison systems that mass incarcerate and kill us every day, unquote. Bizarrely, the group has taken a fix on Anne Frank, calling the Holocaust victim a quote-unquote bleach demon whose death to them overshadowed the suffering of colonized people worldwide. Black Hammer members have taken part in rallies and protests across the country, but the scant media reports on their activities don't mention the racism and the apparent pathological fixation on Jews. Instead, they praise the quote-unquote activist group for holding vigils for coronavirus victims and handing out masks, food, and clothing to their fellow people of color. But while they've been pushing Farrakhan-style racism on Twitter and getting stuck into charity work on the streets, Black Hammer's members have been stockpiling cash. A GoFundMe campaign organized by the group has pulled in nearly $65,000 since last July. The group wants $500,000 to build a city of their own with free health care, free rent, and no cops. White people and Jews are presumably not welcome. On Monday, the group announced that it had successfully liberated 200 acres of land to build our city, adding that their real-life Wakanda would be, quote-unquote, for colonized people only. Presumably liberated in this instance means bought. Located somewhere in Colorado, the Hammer City site apparently has rich soil as well as one lake and three rivers. Black Hammer is not the first American group to buy land on which to build a racially exclusive enclave. White nationalists have previously taken advantage of low prices in states like Montana and North Dakota to set up pioneer little Europe communities, ethnically homogenous settlements of like-minded whites. But while the racists in Montana and North Dakota bought up fertile land, commenters pointed out that the Black Hammer crew might find it hard to build a sustainable city so high in the mountains. Uh, quote, may God have mercy on them, one wrote for the arid scrubland of one of the most historically inhabitable regions on earth will not. Uh, Rich soil, Siri, how often does it snow at random times during growing season in the Colorado mountains at 10,000 feet? Siri, uh, I don't know what this is, is like a quote from somewhere. What solar radiation is like at 10,000 feet and how much does it increase skin cancer risk? How come this land was so cheap? Many commenters foresaw the experiment crashing down before the crop's in, in, inevitable fail. Some compared it to 2017's Fire Festival, a luxury music festival in the Bahamas that promised guests an A-list experience but left them fighting over food in a makeshift tent village. Others predicted that the Hammer City would end in a Jonestown-style tragedy. They're going to end up eating each other by October, one commenter jeered. Based only on information made public by Black Hammer, it is still unclear whether the group actually bought the land or not. It's possible that its members simply went for a hike in the mountains and declared the land to be liberated. <laughs> Regardless, the group is still pulling in a steady stream of donations, raising several hundred dollars since announcing the liberation. White folks may not be welcome in Hammer City, but their dollars certainly are. Black Hammer offers a reparations program for colonizers who want to atone for their apparent sins. Starting at $40 and ranging up to $199, white people can pay for classes and boot camps that the organization says will help them disunite with your people's worldwide acts of genocide and terror. Uh, end, of the, end of the article. So legitimate 
you know, legitimate market activity or something else entirely? Your thoughts, MC? Um, wow, that's kind of interesting. Um, but at least if they if they go somewhere and they congregate and they uh, practice their racism, at least there's a place to go to try to convince them not to be that way. <laughs> would so, you okay? Would you bother, or would you just? Yeah, I mean, somebody would. Okay, somebody would. Um, I think it's important for uh, people to be free enough to to do something like that. You know, like they should be allowed to. Um, yeah. Now, if they're uh, using that as a, as a base camp to uh, launch violent protests uh, in cities and stuff, then well, eventually they'll get taken out. You know, <laughs> they'll yeah. get retaliation. So, and 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 to me, right? Like in in my mind, this goal is noble, um, and I wouldn't mind doing that here with like liberty-minded individuals who just want to get away from the oppression of the state, right? Sure, yeah. Like you, that, would be, that would be the goal. We um, just disappear. Um, but for us, I don't think there would be like planned acts of aggression because we have already removed ourselves from that environment, right? So if, if, the, if the Black Hammer uh, is successful in this endeavor, right, like they, they either have bought or will buy the land and – they pop up their city or whatever. Um, would they bother, you know, uh, attacking, you know, the whites and the Jews outside of that area? Like that, you know, they've established their autonomous zone. They're being left alone for the most part and just be there. Right. Yeah. From what it sounds like they, they plan on using that to, as, as a tool of recruitment and saying, you know, you could have the access to here and we'll, you know, feed you and clothe you and then, but they expect you to kind of go out and uh, okay. get on the news and stuff. That, that's, I mean, cause that's what they, I mean, that's what they're, that's what they started doing and that's how they're probably going to keep doing it. But um, yeah, they could, they could just, you know, stay in their little commune and, you know, live happily ever after, uh, you know, without any Jews around if that's what they want. Um, yeah. So, so but, from, but, li- but likely that's not going to be the, the, their end goal. Yeah. So with the with the, with the libertarian umbrella over this whole thing for the moment, right? It's okay for them to be like anti-Semitic and anti-white, uh, as long as they don't act aggressively against other you know fellow human beings. If they yeah, want, true. if they want to use that as a base of recruitment, right? And they go like, "Hey, we're communists. If you were you're if you're a communist and you want to get away from the Jews and the whites, you know, we we have you know your your homeland or whatever. I don't know what to call it. Um, like a gulch gulch sort of thing. You, you come here to get away from that. Um, and then, you know, th- theoretically they, they would be taken care of, right. as, as communists purport to do. Uh, I don't know how many subscriptions they would have to sign up of people of white people giving them their 50 bucks or $199 or whatever it was to sustain it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like, it sounds bad because they're, you know, radical anti-Semites and, and you know, communists. But if, you know, if we've always said, if the, communist, if the communists want to go out onto the land and start their own commune and see how successful that is, let them. And it sounds like they're doing just that. 
I, I hear your point about them, you know, wanting to recruit for violence. And part of, again, part of me goes like, maybe if they've established that to such a degree, right, where they're like, no, we've, we've actually got a good thing going, maybe they retract on that violence as a way to avoid uh, retaliation. Right? That's, you know, that's how peaceful communities across the globe have done it since the beginning of, uh, you know, time, right? And you're like, no, no, no. We don't want to fight because fighting is bad for us and both of us because lives are lost yeah. and things are destroyed. But I, but I also think if if the communists are uh, true to their belief, then it, it will inevitably end in violence because um, you know people outside of their commune, uh, some of them are going to have more than they have. And, and communists think that there isn't anything, any such thing as theft. And if somebody has something, then... They, if they can just have it if they want it. Yeah. I, I Again, I hear you. Um, it always reminds me, I think the, the, I think the documentary was like Anarchism in America or something, Life on the Mesa. It's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched it over a decade ago. Um, but they're, you know, they're, they're out there and they were interviewing, you know, um, an older gentleman or whatever. And he's like, oh yeah, we got these ANCOMs over here and they, they sneak in at night and they just take things <laughs> and right. scurry off because you know they believe that this is all theirs right but it the 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 mechanisms by which they uh perform those acts of liberation right like they sneak in in the middle of the night to steal the food is indicative of the fact that they they recognize that there is a danger involved and mm-hmm. that what they might be doing is wrong on some moral level <laughs> right. right otherwise uh, they just do it in broad daylight otherwise like, yeah oh, you just yeah. do it in broad daylight <laughs> So the, you know, so if, if, if the black hammer, you know, sets up this base of operation and, you know, is then sending out minions or whatever, uh, into the towns to, you know, collect their commie goods, um, I would, I would expect some retaliation. Um, and I don't know, you know, I don't know how prepared, um, they would be on only 200 acres for that retaliation, right? Like, you know, all of a sudden you know, the eyes are on them. They'd be, you know, surveilled at some point. Um, and I don't know what that would do for recruitment from their perspective, right? Because ev- anyone you recruit in, um, you know, is all automatically a threat to the surrounding area, right? Like, you know, you eliminate the threat. So then it becomes dangerous just to be a part of their commune. Whereas if they, you know, if they, if they settle up in the desert and they do their best to grow their crops and, you know, hopefully succeed, and they never have to leave their commune, um, you know, more power to them, right? Like I'm, I, aside from the, the violent threat of which, you know, you, which you're reading MC, I don't see anything wrong with what they're attempting to do, even if I don't agree with their philosophy, right? I guess sure. that's the, yeah. So get on out there, black hammer, build your commune. <laughs> show we, us how it's done. Show us how it's done. <laughs> leave us alone. Oh, here's a, here's a real quick from the article. This was a tweet. Uh, the reparation uh, the reparation scale. So you have the Che level, $40. The Sankara level, $99 minimum. And the Mao level of reparations, which is $199 minimum. So be, become a recruit of the reparations corps. Make monthly reparation payments and contact us to give your skill, possessions, land, etc. as far as reparations. So, I mean, even that... Right, seems voluntary I'm, to me. I'm just curious though. Once, once, uh, once they have been repaired, 
<laughs> from the reparations. Um, will I be welcome there? I don't know. Would I do? Are you? Would you have been the one uh, repairing them? Like, are you paying your share of your? I mean, I I didn't. I've never damaged anybody, but if, understood. If they want reparations, and I think uh, Jordan Peterson asked that one time on stage. He said, "Exactly how much do I owe, so I can just get it over with, and right. not have to be bothered by this comment anymore?" You know, and uh, yeah, they don't have they don't have a number for that. They don't they don't know. They just want you know, and that's again another problem with the communists is uh, they're resentful and and it's never ending. Right. So the so if you were serious about that, I would suggest that you ask them, you know, what it would be. Uh, mm-hmm. So that you can just get it over with. Um, no, I mean, I I already know the answer, but <laughs> yeah. But my other question is, why would you want to go there? Like, what what <laughs> what do you think they no, would I, be offering you? The only reason I'm ask, asking the question is because I I want them to be forthright with with what they're what they're trying to accomplish. Okay. And and I I think communism is a scam to begin with. So, all right. Let me let me read you the, uh, briefly this Mao level. Uh, $199 minimum. So this is what you get when you sign up for this. This is also from the same tweet. Eight-week boot camp, get fully certified as someone who is united under colonized leadership. By completing this level, you'll get the chance to provide your skills to the organization and be an active recruiter to make sure that other people are continuing to pay reparations and support the masses of poor and working class colonized people. Upon completion, you will also receive a reparations core uniform. Uh, yep, that's, a, that's all I can read here. So, it sound, sounds like they just want people to work for them. Well, duh. That, again, <laughs> if if we're if we're talking about you know communists, right? I that's that's part of. I the worked gig. for the communists, and all I got was this lousy. What would they say it was? A uniform or something? Uh, the the reparations core uniform. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and so, so again, right? Like they're going, they're going to be purchasing this land. However, they're going to need people to work the land. And I guess, presumably they want this role reversal where you as a white person signs up for this reparations. Uh, you're going to be on, you're going to be there for eight weeks of this boot camp of, of, you know, something or other. Uh, but, but then provide your skills to the organization I don't know what that is, right? But one of the one of the sign up yeah, things probably is, doing whatever the hell they want you to do. <laughs> well, but if, but if you're an IT guy, man, I don't know how much you know IT yeah, support they, they need. Well, they they need recruitment people, and IT you can easily move that into recruitment. I man, I think they need farmers first, right? If they're, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think they're thinking about actually working. You know, right? <laughs> like, well, that's what's a, that meme about? Uh, if 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 the if the college students actually knew what uh, communism was um, based on, which is uh, physical labor, then they wouldn't be interested. <laughs> right, I hear you, and again, that's why I think they're setting up this reparation thing because they have they have no plans on working, right? But right. if they can if they convince enough white people, right, to you know with farmers first, please, uh, here, here, pro tip, black hammer, <laughs> farmers first. <laughs> Uh, if they find enough white people to provide their skills, possessions, land, and money as reparations, right? Then, what what they're setting up is their own little welfare system, right? 
the the white people voluntarily work for the commune, voluntarily pay into it, voluntarily pay their reparations, and that that allows these colonized uh, persons um, to enjoy life more freely on the commune, right? Like I, they're I taken care the, of. I think what they believe is that there's just never ending money from white people that will just flood in and they won't have to worry about anybody actually working or telling people to work. It's just about getting the donations. So, okay. So they can build on this property and that's, that's about it. I mean, again, I hear you. And then I go like, they have no idea how to set prices because, you know, honestly, they're not worried about that. They're just going to get the money and then go into town and buy whatever the hell they need. I hear you. But, okay. So, but if I give them $199, right, yep. for this Mao level reparation package, there's an eight-week boot camp, right? It, yeah, and it's designed to train people how to uh, recruit and get more. It's a, it's a pyramid scam, basically. <laughs> sure, but with this eight, but I'm paying for this eight-week boot camp. Like I'm buying a service that they then mm-hmm. have to provide. I don't know what's covered in this eight-week boot camp, but I've I mean, I've spent I more. Hope, I'd I'd hope they feed you, but probably not. Yeah. Well, I guess my point is I've <laughs> I've spent more money for shorter classes, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, <laughs> this seems cheap for eight weeks worth of knowledge and information. You know, depending on the the topic of whatever they're covering. So, well, it, it might be cheap, but it might just be someone yelling at you for eight weeks, <laughs> telling you how bad of a person you are. <laughs> well, and again, presumably I, I'm free to leave, right? I mean, that's presumably, yeah. presumably other, otherwise they have a much you know bigger case on their hands. Um, but presumably I'm able to leave and I go like, okay, so, you know, this, this was $199 spent, uh, to get a story as a, as a journalist or, you know, podcaster mm-hmm. clubhouser you know radio talk shows and all right 200 bucks Let, let's see what let's see what's actually going on for 200 bucks um <laughs> and I'll, I'll even like wear my reparation core uniform yeah, on so we'll, we'll have to follow up on that I, I doubt either one of us are actually going to uh take the time out of our day to do that but. no because you got to take eight weeks there's like there's no way i'm taking eight weeks that's you know <laughs> well, i mean you could you could go for the introduction class and you know stay a day or two and be like all right peace oh, yeah. out <laughs> yeah maybe we'll see and, and i have i have no business in colorado we have friends right. in colorado though we should like we should recruit them to, to check this thing out <laughs> yeah all right moving on sure all right so from communism I guess we'll go. The, uh, we'll go this route. Escaping serfdom. Uh, the concept of government is that people grant to a small group of individuals the ability to establish and maintain controls over them. The inherent flaw in such a concept is that any government will invariably and continually expand upon its controls, resulting in the ever diminishing freedom of those who grant them the power. When I was a schoolboy, I was taught that the feudal system of the Middle Ages consisted of serfs tilling small plots of land that belonged to the king or lord. The serfs lived a meager life of bare sustenance, subsistence and were subject to the tyranny of the king or lord, whose men would ride into their village periodically and take most of the few coins the serf has earned by their toil. The lesson I was meant to learn from this was that I should be grateful that in the modern world, I live in a state of freedom from tyranny, 
And as an adult, I would pay only that level of tax that could be described as fair. Later in life, I was to learn that in the actual feudal system, some land was owned by noblemen, some by common men. The commoners typically farmed their own land, whilst the noblemen parceled out their land to farmers in trade for a portion of the products of their labors. As a part of that bargain, the noblemen would pay for an army of professional soldiers to protect both the farms and the farmers. Significantly, unlike today, no farmer was required to defend the land himself, as it was not his. There was no exact standard as to what the nobleman would charge a farmer under this agreement, but the general standard was one day's labor in ten. This was not an amount imposed or regulated by any government. The nobleman could charge as much as he wished. However, if he raised his rate significantly, he would find that farmers would leave and move to another nobleman's farm. The 10% was, in essence, a rate that evolved over time through a free market. Modern serfdom. Today, of course, if most countries levied an income tax of a mere 10%, there would be dancing in the streets, and the day of one simple straightforward tax are long gone. Today, the average person may expect to pay property tax even if he is a renter, sales tax, capital gains tax, value-added tax, inheritance tax, and so on. The laundry list of taxes is so long and complex that it's no longer possible to compute what the total tax level actually is for anyone. And to this, we add the hidden tax of inflation. In the U.S., for example, the Federal Reserve has, over the last 100 years, devalued the dollar by 98%, a hefty tax indeed. And the U.S. is not alone in this. Only 50 years ago, the average man might work a 40-hour week to support a wife who remained at home raising the children. He often had a mortgage on his home but might have paid it off in 10 years. He paid cash for nearly everything else that he and his family owned or consumed. Today, both husband and wife generally must be employed full-time. In spite of this, they can't afford as many children as their parents could, and they generally remain in debt their entire lives, even after retirement. This is significant inflation by any measure. In contrast, in the Middle Ages, the cost of goods might remain the same throughout the entire lifetime of an individual. In light of the above, the 10% that was paid by the serfs is beginning to look very good indeed. However, the great majority of people in the first world are likely to say, what can you do? It's the same all over the world. You might as well get used to it. Well, no, actually it's not. There are many governmental and economic systems out there, and many are quite a bit more surf-friendly than those in major countries. Countries such as the British Virgin Islands, the Cayman Islands, Bermuda, and the Bahamas have no income tax. Further, some have no property tax, sales tax, capital gains tax, value-added tax, inheritance tax, and so on. So how is this possible? The OECD countries state that it is largely accomplished through money laundering, but this is not the case. In fact, low-tax jurisdictions are known to have some of the most stringent banking laws in the world. The success of these jurisdictions is actually quite simple. Most of them are small. They have small populations and therefore need only a small government. Yet each jurisdiction can accommodate large numbers of investors from overseas. This results in a very high level of income per capita. But unlike large countries, the money that is deposited or invested there is overseas money, so it is not captive. Investors can transfer it out overnight if need be. So even if the politicians are no better than those in large countries, generally they are of the same ilk, they're aware that, like the noblemen of old, if they attempt to impose taxations, the business will dry up quickly. In fact, such a free market dictates that the jurisdictions 
keep on their toes and keep trying to outdo their competitors by being more investment friendly. Therefore, the politicians in these countries who might be only too happy to promise entitlements to their constituents, then tax them to the hilt in order to pay for entitlements, are kept restrained by their own system. Are there downsides to living in a low-tax jurisdiction? Yes. As most of them are small but require a very high standard of living in order to attract investors, they must import virtually all goods needed by residents. This means a higher cost of all goods as compared to the cost in a country that produces such goods. However, the wage level is also higher, which tends to balance out the equation. But there are also upsides. Those who move to such a jurisdiction find that after the first year there, where when the basics such as cars, televisions, etc. have been paid for, all further income has been saved from taxation is beginning to get deposited in the bank. At some point, the deposit level becomes great enough that investment becomes advisable. And as a low-tax jurisdictions tend to be naturally prosperous, there is general no limit, generally no limit to the opportunities for investment within the jurisdiction. There is a further benefit to living in a low-tax jurisdiction that tends to become apparent over time. Any government that depends on major investments from overseas parties must, of necessity, be non-intrusive and non-invasive. Such a government stays out of the people's business, eschews electronic monitoring, and most certainly is not given to SWAT teams crashing down doors for imagined wrongdoings. Benjamin Franklin famously said, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And he was correct. But the level of tax can vary greatly from one country to the next. And just as important, the level of government intervention into the affairs of its citizenry varies considerably. In a country where the level of tax is low, the quality of life is generally correspondingly high. A thousand years ago, noblemen from time to time became overly confident in their ability to keep the serfs on the farmland and demanded taxes beyond the customary one day's labor in ten. When they did, the serfs of old often voted with their feet and simply moved. Today, this is still possible. End of the article. Oh, wait, one more. If the readers presently contribute more than one day's labor in ten to his government, he may wish to consider voting with his feet. All right, there you go. End of the article. So we talked a little mm-hmm. bit about moving uh, you know, to Puerto Rico, I think, on last week's show. Um, yeah, there's probably better places outside the U.S., um, Bahamas, uh, I brought up the other day. Yep. Um, but some people are going, I can't remember if it was Peru or Portugal, but um, some other places. It may be Portugal. Um, M has a friend who's moving or is planning on moving to Portugal. And <laughs> I will say this. This is like one of one of the um, oh shit moments for me, like living on the East Coast. Uh, it's a more feasible vacation or flight to then go visit her friend uh, in Portugal than it is to fly home to Hawaii. <laughs> right. Like it's like Portugal's like a four and a half hour flight. Like <laughs> Hawaii's 11. I go, oh shit. Like Europe, you know, a vacation to Europe is now like on the table. Should, should we want to, right. Mm-hmm. Rather than all the way home because it's just so goddamn, you know, such a long flight and so not worth it. Uh, yeah. And then, and then there's, I don't know. Um, how are the uh, the prices for the flights? Because um, I know, like Hawaii, they, they try to punish uh, uh, tourists, right? Uh, so, so f- flights are probably uh, have extra taxes on them. Yeah, that might that might be true. Um, I don't know how low they get um, right now. If they start allowing American tour- unvaccinated American tourists back, <laughs> uh, it might be low now. 
Um, when we were still in Hawaii at one point, M had suggested like, cause she, you know, followed some travel blog or whatever. And it was a uh, $200 round trip to Paris. So it would cost us like 400 bucks to go to, to, to go to France. I go, okay, that's great. But that's like one expense, right? That is just mm-hmm. the flight. So right. in my mind, in my mind, it can be as low as, you know, a couple hundred bucks for the flight itself. Um, but I'm just, I'm talking more about the convenience factor as opposed to the financial expense, right? Like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, we're just, we're going to, we're going to hop on a plane and we're going to be in London sooner than we would be if we hopped on the, uh, you know, same plane from the same airport flying to Los Angeles, that yep. sort of thing. Like to, you know, that, that. No, Hawaii, Hawaii is a very remote place. Probably the most remote place in, in the world. Understood. But I, again, it like, it, it didn't dawn on me how remote like conceptually right like, i'm just mm-hmm. talking about my conception of it i went oh shit you know i can't believe we're that close you know type of a thing neither right here nor there but uh, but it also means you know moving if we were to move again which is very unlikely at this point like i'm i'm fairly settled in to new hampshire at this point um it doesn't the 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 it doesn't appear that the article actually um met the burden of the headline, right? Like you're not escaping serfdom. You're just moving to a different farm, one that serves <laughs> your needs better, right? Sure. And oddly enough, you know, every time I see stuff like this and then we go back to the, you know, the black hammers, uh, I go like, what well, it would seem the best way to escape that thing because we live in a, in a system that allows for it is to become the nobleman yourself right? Become the landlord, become the landowner, um, and let someone toil for you as bad as that sounds, or, you know, whatever, like sure. you, know, but, you have renters. But also, but does that mean also becoming the politician? I don't know. I don't, I want to say no. Um, because in, in the example given in the article, right, it was voluntary. Like I have this land that I command over and you can voluntarily work the farms for one tenth of yeah. your labor. But I mean, you could, you could say that, but it's easier said than done that the government typically of that area still has, you know, the real ownership. Okay. And okay. So I hear your question again then. And I, I think I've made that case in the past, right? Like I, you know, the, the question that I posed is like, you know, as, as libertarians, as anarchists, we want to be free, right? And then I think like, who has the most freedom to do as they please in the, in, in the world, in society today? And the answer is the politicians, right? Like, yeah, th- maybe it's like a politician isn't really free himself. He just, he's just gaming the system. He's just better at gaming the system and he doesn't care whether it leads to personal freedom or not, he might be able to do uh, some things to the rest of us for his own benefit. Uh, but people are, he's still willing to be subjected to the other politicians uh, whims also. And so uh, he might just, you know, raise himself up on the ladder uh, while, uh, you know, hurting other people around him. Um, but he's, but he's just, he just, he's okay with the game. And that's, that's one of my biggest problems with, politics is uh the game sucks i I don't want to play their game like at all (laughs) understood and and if you if you could uh remove yourself from the game right by all means do it 
Mm-hmm. What I what I am suggesting is that when you think about those individuals that get away with like the most egregious offenses to humanity, right? It's it's always the political class, the protected class, um, the the government agents. You know, um, cop shoots dog. You know, uh, cop, yeah. I mean, pop, if, cops if okay. what you if what you want to do is uh, aggress and steal, then politician is a it will make you a more free person. Right, but I'm also suggesting that it allows you to have more of the normal freedoms that that we would you know take for that we may take for granted right because Maybe. they're be, well because they're in that in that class yes they they can do the I bad mean, things it's like sometimes when a judge gets pulled over the cop lets them go right you know? that's what i'm talking <laughs> about so if you value but it, going but fast it's not always the, the case if you value going fast on the highway if you have enough political clout right you will not pay a ticket even if pulled over right if you in, enjoy certain drugs right uh you can do those drugs and not worry about uh, getting arrested, going to prison, if you are of a certain class of individual. Right. So, but a judge couldn't buy a piece of land and uh, start, uh, you know, selling cocaine uh, on uh, with a storefront uh, and get away with it. You know. So. Well, not yet. Right, but as they legalized marijuana and the dispensaries, you know, started to become a thing, right? A lot, a lot of that, um, at least, at least a handful of articles have popped up. I don't want to say the majority of them, right? Were like from from the drug warriors, right? Like you know, the the, the police officer in the town opens up a dispensary, um, so he's putting away people, right, for for decades for uh, doing drugs, selling drugs. And the moment it becomes legal, he's now profiting off of it while, you know, the, the people who have profited in the past rot away in a jail cell under his hand. So they, mm-hmm. de- they definitely take advantage of those things. Um, yeah, yeah. And with that political clout, right, if, if you know, some, some com- com- competing minority or vagrant s- tries to compete with him, well, he's got the political clout to put that dude out of business. And he was, he, you know, he's the only dispensary in town. So... As, as far as, maybe, maybe freedom is a bad word, but the liberties to do absolutely whatever you please in this world, um, we, would, we would limit ourselves to not infringing upon another person's equal rights to do those things. They may not, um, but as far as those liberties are concerned, you know, it always, it always looks like um, the politically connected class has more liberty than the rest of us. Like they're, they're, the risk level for them is so much lower that they do as they please and we take a risk if we uh, operate it at the same level as them. So I would hear the case, right, that, you know, if you want to be more free and you want to have more liberties, right, you have to f- work your way into the political sphere and work your way up that ladder. Would I agree with that? No. Would I uh, advocate for that? No. Would I support that? No. Um, but I would hear the case, right? That's if mm-hmm. that's your goal, that's you know, that's the that's the path to victory, um, and I think I might have like come to this line of thinking uh, through like the you know the the egoist anarchist or the egoist the Max the Sternerites, mm-hmm. right? Where the uh, hey, it's just what I'm I'm supreme and I'm number one and you know uh, t- 
to, to hell with all else. I'm, I'm out here for me and me alone. I, and so I'm, I'm trying to process that through. And like the, the reason I would never consider myself to be an egoist or like, you know, a sternerite in, in that vein of things is because to me, it leads to making those decisions, right? Like if, if I'm only out for me, uh, best place to be is in government if, in order to get away with more things. Right. And I wouldn't support, I wouldn't support that decision. Um, I, I would have the, the moral qualms and the moral objection to that. Um, but if you're an egoist, right. And you go like, I'm just, I'm just out for myself. Well then, yeah, uh, I, I could see those people taking government jobs and government positions and working their way through politics because it allow it would allow them the most, uh, the most liberties, um, or at least more liberties than yeah. they would have otherwise. I, I don't think those people care about liberties at all. I think what they see is a game and, and a top of it. And they're, they're just trying to win the game. Um, you know, what, what liberties come or go, they're not concerned with. These are the people that work their way to the top of politics. Yes. Okay. Um, fair. I mean, for, for the current people doing it, but you know, if, I still don't think that makes it less of a valid goal or mechanism or, or pathway no, I mean, p- for people, those. People have their, their own, uh, you know, desires that, that, but, um, I, I just, I just want to, I want to make a, se- a, a, a separation between, uh, people who are doing things, you know, solely for themselves and their ego and a libertarian who, who cares about liberty for themselves and for others. Oh yeah, I, I would definitely. I'm making. I think I'm making that distinction as well, right. because I. Uh, that's why I brought up the the egoist and sternerites because I don't. I don't know if I would consider those people libertarians, although there may be you know libertarians amongst them, um, because again to to go all out for yourself, I think that leads to the the structure of statism, um, mm-hmm. and I don't think that libertarians would support that. So that's that's yeah, that's I where I draw that, that line. So most, most, I would, I would say that most libertarians are not egoists because they're seeking those liberties and those freedoms for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And I would suggest that the egoist does not care. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we're on the same page. Anything else with getting out of serfdom? Um, no, good luck. All right. <laughs> Let us go to this headline then. Um, we have KS listening in on the clubhouse but he has not raised his hand to join so i don't know if he's if you if you want to participate cast you put your hand up there there we go invite <clears throat> well i i didn't have anything to say as such so i didn't uh join in but i'm glad to be uh, a participant love this uh this session i was uh i had some conflicts this morning with other things so not a problem join late this is the beauty of the clubhouse uh, presentation that we're doing now is you can come and go as you please. Um, the, the reason I was hoping you would join us is because I'm going to do a different article than I would have since you are here, because this is one that I think you might be able to add some value to the conversation. And I kind of want to just bounce it off of you personally. Um, and I'll read, I'll read you the headline and then I'll, I'll briefly talk about the, um, uh, the concept in general, and then we'll, we'll get into the article here. Um, if you're up for it, you up for it? Sure. All sure. right. So the headline is how trillions in newly printed money 
created a labor shortage. And <laughs> there has been a there has been a handful of articles and complaints and concerns over the last couple of weeks um, about this labor shortage. And the general I, the, the the two arguments that are being raised is, um, be, you know, from from the from the business owners who are unable to find workers willing to work. They're like, well, no, of course, no one wants to work because the government's giving out free money, right? If you, if you, you know, if, if you, if you give out these unemployment checks, then people are going to take the unemployment and they won't want to come to work. And I hear that and I go like, well, that's valid, right? And then the other side of it is, um, well, maybe if you paid them enough, right, maybe they'd be willing to get off their ass and come to work for a reasonable wage, um, and I respect that argument as well. Um, I know there's some intricacies in there, but those that's what I hear. I see both sides, which is why I kind of wanted to have this discussion with you. But let's go through this article. Um, this is, again, one of many on this topic. Um, and this is this one specifically is, you know, how the, the, the newly printed trillions of dollars have an impact on this. And then I'll get your thoughts. Okay, yes. All right. <coughs> If you're tired of binge-watching Netflix, there are likely a few restaurants in your neighborhood who would love to hire you. A job might help relieve the boredom. On the other hand, why work when you can just be one of the more than 6 million former workers now collecting pandemic unemployment insurance? Those millions are in addition to the 3.6 million former workers collecting ordinary unemployment insurance. For many workers, these benefits now total $300 per week. In March, President Biden extended the program until September. And then there are the many millions more who have recently received a piece of the third round of stimulus payments. All three bailouts combined to a total of $460 billion in checks mailed out to Americans. So it shouldn't be an enormous shock when we found out that many employers are having trouble finding workers. One McDonald's restaurant is offering bonuses just for showing up for an interview. One eatery is offering a $400 sign-on bonus. Nor is it just the service industry that can't find workers. Construction employers are reporting shortages, as are trucking operations. The NBC affiliate out of Green Bay, Wisconsin, reports that the price of gas may increase because so few tank trucks drivers can be found. The problem is a lack of qualified drivers. Even government employers who tend to offer more job security and a lot more vacation time than private firms are offering extra cash to get more applicants in the door. Millions of workers have also left the labor force. An endless stream of unemployment checks isn't the only thing fueling the worker shortage. Record numbers of Americans are leaving the labor force entirely. In January 2020, 96 million American adults were outside the labor force. That shot up to 104 million in April of last year. But as businesses opened up and it increased hours, there were still 100 million Americans not in the labor force. In other words, over the past year, an additional 4 million workers exited the labor force. These people are not actively looking for the work and are not on unemployment and are not factored in to the unemployment rate. Over the 100 million adult Americans who are out of the labor force, 6.5 million say they want a job now, yet for whatever reason, they're not collecting any wage, even in a time when they're being told anyone can walk into a restaurant and get immediately hired. In other words, 
yes, millions of Americans are being paid to stay home, but that's not the whole picture. Millions more have given up looking for work altogether. The illusion of GDP growth. This contrasts with the rosy picture of unemployment that the regime is now trying to paint. For example, we're being told that the employment situation is excellent because the headline unemployment rate has fallen over the past year from 14.4% to 6.2%. That's certainly a big improvement, but it also suggests that the number of unemployed job seekers remains high. An unemployment rate of 6.2%, after all, puts unemployment at a higher level than anything experienced between 1994 and 2008. It's not exactly a low rate, and has nearly doubled the unemployment rate of April 2019, 3.3%. The narrative of an unemployment boom is so sketchy that even Fed personnel, uh, i.e. Minneapolis Fed President Kiel Kashkari, admits the unemployment rate is more like 9.5%. And then there's the unconvincing overall narrative of economic growth, as noted last week by Daniel Lacall. One should naturally expect big increases in GDP when massive amounts of monetary stimulus have been pumped into the economy. GDP is based largely on spending, and spending goes up as trillions of new dollars are printed. Lacal writes, uh, quote, There is an overly optimistic consensus view about the speed and strength of the United States recovery that is contradicted by facts. It is true that the United States recovery is stronger than the European or Japanese one, but the macro data shows that the euphoric message about aggregate GDP growth are wildly exaggerated. Of course, gross domestic products is going to rise fast, with estimates of 6% for 2021. It would be alarming if it did not, after a massive chain of stimuli of more than 12% of GDP in fiscal spending and $7 trillion in Federal Reserve balance sheet expansion. This is combined stimulus that is almost three times larger than the 2008 crisis one, according to McKinsey. The question is, what is the quality of this recovery? And the answer is extremely poor. The United States' real growth, excluding the increase in debt, will continue to be exceedingly small. No one can talk about a strong recovery when industry capacity utilization is at 74%, massively below the level of 80% at which it was before the pandemic. Furthermore, labor force participation rate stands at 61.5%, significantly below the pre-COVID levels and stalling after bouncing to 62% in September. Unemployment may be at 6%, but it's still almost twice as large as it was before the pandemic. Continuing jobless claims remain above 3.7 million in April. Weekly jobless claims remain above 500,000, and the total number of people claiming benefits in all programs, state and federal combined, for the weeks ending March 27th, decreased by 1.2 million to 16.9 million. These figures must be put in the context of unprecedented spending spree and the monetary stimulus. Yes, the recovery is better than the Eurozones, thanks to a fast and efficient vaccination rollout and the dynamism of the United States business fabric. But the figures show that the relevant amount of the subsequent stimulus plan have simply perpetuated overcapacity, kept zombie firms that had financial issues before COVID-19 alive, and bloated the government's structural deficit and mandatory spending, uh, end quote. A temporary labor bubble. So why the labor shortage? As with GDP overall, it's helpful to look to money printing as a partial explanation. We should absolutely expect to see a surge in demand for employment as a result of the central bank printing up trillions of dollars. In our money printing based economy, printing money is being substituted for production. Thus, millions of workers can stay home while demand remains steady or even increases. 
idle workers still have a lot of dollars to spend. Demand continues upward, even as production falls. Contrast this with how labor markets work in a normal economy. In a normal economy, the, fa- the fact millions of workers are electing to stay home rather than produce anything should have a depressing or stabilizing effect on the demand for labor. That is, 10 million or so idle workers would mean workers have far fewer dollars to spend. This, in turn, would mean less demand for goods and services such as restaurant meals and retail sales. This would then tend to keep wages flat as well. As Say's law reminds us, production must precede demand in a functioning economy. It is the act of producing goods and services which produces the income necessary to increase demand. So what are these prospects for the labor bubble? In the short term, we can hazard some guesses about what happens. Demand is likely to continue increase, as is price inflation. As Warren Buffett recently highlighted at a shareholders meeting, quote, we are seeing a very substantial inflation. We are raising prices. People are raising prices to us and it's being accepted, uh, end quote. In the medium and long term, this will mean reduced purchasing power for those relying on unemployment checks. How the unemployment, how the employment bubble will play out beyond this summer, however, would depend somewhat on whether the federal government again extends benefits and at what payment level. If benefits remain flat, then the real value of benefits will decline, and at least some workers are likely to more enthusiastically seek work again. In any case, we're still in the early stages of a boom fueled by unprecedented amounts of money creation. Trillions have flowed into households via stimulus checks and unemployment checks, yet although there are growing signs of price inflation, consumer prices in many cases are still adjusting to the new realities of money supply greatly outpacing production. For those looking for a chance to build some job experience, now's the time to do it. This wage and employment bubble is unlikely to last. End of the article. Uh, so again, I want, I want to throw it to you and get your thoughts on not necessarily the article, just that the article highlights the current climate uh, and the labor shortage and maybe what, what your opinion is uh, that accounts for it and how it can be uh, overcome so that people get back to work and, and business can move on. KS? Yeah. Well, I have one, one recommendation first, and that is sure. Um, even if they're giving people money uh, for unemployment, um, maybe they're giving too much. I don't know. But in any case, if they would just uh, allow them to keep take, getting the payments while they're starting their new employment, then people would take jobs. So let, let, them, let them keep their unemployment check while they're uh, working their fir- first month or two at their new job, and then they'll make that uh, cost-benefit analysis, and at least uh, work will be getting done instead of no work uh, be getting done. And I almost want to see maybe, because uh, just as an example, sorry, KS, we'll get back. Um, the, the example that I would give is uh, when Seattle raised their uh, minimum wage to $15 an hour to help workers, um, workers decided that they would accept more leisure time, right? Like they sure. didn't want more money, but now that they had, now that they had the you know well, higher wage, they worked less. That's true. So people will work, will maybe choose to work less with higher wages. Um, but if they're not working at all, um, there's a good chance that even though they're getting their, their unemployment checks, that they're doing something under the table to make money Okay. on top of that. So um, if you want them in the, uh, uh, you know, off the black market, then um, you have to uh, let them um, or not, not punish them for, for, 
allowing them to work. <laughs> Fair enough. That's, if that makes sense. It does. Yep. Uh, go ahead, KS. That's exactly right. The, the fact that you're getting the um, unemployment benefits that stop if you get a job is the disincentive to get the job. It's just like it was years ago when they said to aid for families with dependent children, uh, you can get the welfare if your family stays together. Um, but if your family, I mean, if your family breaks up, but if your family stays together, then you'll lose the uh, the benefits. It's a, a built-in s- system, probably with all the great intentions of sympathy and help, uh, but it works as a disincentive for the objectives you're trying to get in terms of uh, employment. Yeah, they call so, it the yeah. welfare cliff, right, or something to that effect. Sure, and it's the same thing here with the employment cliff. You know, as soon as you get a job, you lose your unemployment benefits. So MC is correct to say, well, <clears throat> if they let them just keep the, uh, uh, the the checks from the government, regardless of whether they had a job or not, then they would still have the incentive to go ahead and get the job. Even Milton Friedman had this built into what he called the negative income tax. Um, um, the concept that you don't just lose benefits uh, instantly when you get a job. So there's there's that incentive. Uh, how long, but how long the, does that keep going, though? Because at some point, that starts to sound like a universal basic income. Well, yeah, and, yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it is. and But I think that the other uh, side of the of the problem comes in with all this printing of money. You know, the inflation is what erodes the purchasing power of any worker's pay in the first place. And that always works most against low-income workers who are on fixed, fixed income jobs because if, they're, if the inflation rate goes up higher than their, than their wage rate, then they're net losers. And it, inflation is always a redistribution of wealth from low-income people to people who are wealthy enough to afford uh, fixed assets like gold and land and and stocks and other things that are, are going to be going up in value during times of inflation. Right. So it's uh, uh, but Milton Friedman pointed out that there's usually a two-year time lag between the time that you increase the money supply greater than um, what the economy is growing and the inflation rate. He would say the inflation rate reflects exactly the difference between the, the growth in the money supply and the growth in the goods and services in which case i would by his projection within a year because they started this a year ago right. within a year we could expect uh, <clears throat> hyperinflation which will devastate uh the low-income people in this country and probably drive a lot of companies and businesses not to try and hire here but to, to move abroad where to some place where wages are going to be lower anyway so that'll further hurt the productive capacity of this country. Now, I want to co- go ahead. Yeah. No, finish. One, one last thing that came to mind, too. Uh, unemployment rate only measures the, the workforce. But if your workforce diminishes because people drop out of the workforce, you can have a, a high, I mean, a, a, a low unemployment rate when you've got actually a lot more people unemployed because they've just dropped out of the of the workforce entirely. Yeah, that that was covered in the article. Um, I think the the, the Minneapolis Fed president uh, Neil Kashkari said the unemployment rate is more likely nine point five percent. Right when you when you you know the the current rate is six point two, but if you if you you know 
if you adjust it for the people who aren't looking for work and don't qualify for that unemployment rate, then it's obviously higher. Um, yeah. Now, uh, the, the question I want to, you, you, you threw out the term hyperinflation. Um, and I, you know, I hear that term a lot. I've heard that term, you know, just about ever since uh, I started, you know, learning about the philosophy of liberty. Um, you know, I, I'm sure I heard it in school with, you know, Weimar Germany and whatnot, but, you know, like the, the American dollar is going to crash. Um, are you, are you honestly predicting it within the next year? Cause it's, it, it seems like a hyperbolic term that gets thrown out quite a bit. Like, do you really foresee that? Well, <clears throat> under normal circumstances, yes, but then uh, I, I, one could have expected that same thing with the Great Recession back in 2008 because they printed up a whole lot of money. But what they did with it was that they purchased um, the zombie debt, and that's what Japan did uh, 20 years before. And uh, I would say that, uh, well, 15 years before that, and and in a way that was the the malaise of Japan. The government, if they just printed that money and allowed it to be spent, as seems to be happening now, then it can generate uh, this huge rise in prices. But if they use it simply to buy up bad debt from their favored businesses and banks and and companies like the Chrysler or whatever that they don't want to have go bankrupt, and then the Federal Reserve Board just holds those assets, then basically it may not lead into inflation, but it means that all of those assets, those debts become non-performing assets or poor performing assets. And um, so that's what happened after the last recession, I think. And for the future, one, well, they're, they're doing both, but I think this time we could well have inflation. Now, when I say hyperinflation, it means much more than usual. I think we had something close to that back in the late 1970s when we had inflation that was up around 12%, even up to 20%. Um, but, I mean, when when the, the real scare stories are of, you know, Germany after World War One and uh, uh, Zimbabwe and, and uh, Yugoslavia and so on like that where you had well, uh, thousands of percent inflation, you know. And I... I think those things are possible, um, but I'm—I mean, I—I'm horrible at predicting things, so I won't. Okay. I wouldn't. I would just say that it—it's a potential. That's fair. Um, now, uh, aside from doing this lovely podcast, I'm—I am like the average worker, right? Like I have, you know, I have uh, a, a couple of different jobs: one primary and a handful of secondary sources of income. Um, the the shortages across the board have me concerned because coupled with the inflationary monetary policy coupled with, you know, the experience and the knowledge, um, that wages are, are the last thing, uh, to, to rise whenever, when everything else goes up. Um, I have recently become very concerned with all of this nonsense, right? I'm like, well, do I ask for a raise now to try to get ahead of it? You know, um, do, at the real quick interjection uh, at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, right last year, or sort of like close to close to the beginning, but not the very beginning, there was a, a restaurant here that had, you know, closed down. Like it's our, our normal weekly hangout spot. Um, and at one point there was going to be like a meeting held to see what's going to be done about this. 
you know, the, the secret, the, 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 the traditional secret New England meeting in the, you know, in the, in the pubs and the, the churches and whatever. And we're going to have this secret meeting. Um, and the restaurant was going to like provide food and beverage for it. But the guy couldn't get anyone to show up for work, you know, during the pandemic. Um, and me having a restaurant background, I reached out to him on Facebook and said, Hey, you know, I'm willing to work, right? Like hire me because I was about to start a second restaurant job anyway. Um, he never got back to me until like just a couple of months ago. And then he finally added me on, on, on Facebook and, but whatever. Um, when the restaurant finally did open back up, you know, I, I inquired again, you know, because food was coming out slow. I'm like, they must be shorthanded. And I asked, you know, I didn't talk to, I didn't talk to the owner, but I talked to the serving staff and I said, well, how much are you paying kitchen help? And it was well below what I would have accepted for that work. Right. So, um, inflation being one factor, government, uh, stimulus being another factor. And I didn't even get a government stimulus check. Um, isn't the, isn't the quick and dirty solution to, you know, the labor shortage to incentivize people properly by raising wages. And if that leads to a subsequent raise in prices, right. Isn't that just the natural course of things? Well, it depends on if the consumer is willing to pay that price. If the consumer is willing to pay the price, meaning it's inelastic demand, <clears throat> then sure, he can pay it without, he can raise the price without any penalty. But most products are not inelastic. They're elastic, meaning that customers will stop buying from him. They'll buy from his competitor. They'll stop buying, period. They'll start buying from somebody abroad. They'll find a substitute um, because they too are worried because what they pay out of it is out of their paycheck. Uh, when when the pay raise goes up, uh, when the guy raises his price uh, on his restaurant, the customer gets a pay loss because he's has to pay more for that product, and so he's just right. you know. So it it depends on the circumstance, but generally speaking, as long as there's substitutes in the market other than this particular guy, if he's got if he's the only one around that offering that product, then people will yeah. will pay it. But mostly in the marketplace, he's not the only one around. There's lots of substitutes, and, and that's right. the, why the competition keeps prices down. So e either way, you know, it's likely that, you know, th this individual example that we're using goes out of business, right? Because he, he can't find labor to fulfill production demands, right? So he, he loses to the competition there. If he raises his, his price for labor to attract labor into his organization and therefore has to raise the prices. Well, then they go to the competitors. So he loses there. Um, that's right. And to, to fit it into something you said earlier, you said like in Seattle, when the wages went up, that the worker chose to work less because he was getting paid more. Actually, it wasn't his choice to work less. The employer cut back his hours. He was, he was not allowed to work as much as before because the employer was pressed by having to have to keep his costs down. I don't know if that was 100% the case in the Seattle example. I, I've read articles where the, the employer was now in a labor shortage as well because the workers he had said like, well, I was making 300 a week working 40 hours and now I'm making 300 a week working 20 hours. I'm going to go to the beach for 20 hours, right? Like that yeah, was... But, but he, he could he could make that up by expanding the hours of another worker who's who's willing to work more right uh what i what i there was a presentation by the think tank that did the the, the study of the seattle minimum wage raise and they said the hours were cut now 
Okay. Maybe it just means they were there were fewer hours. I don't know on whose side it was, but my guess is the employer. If if one employee says I'm going to take more hours off, the the employer will just say, well, we'll expand the hours of another worker who wants to stay. Okay, that's fair. I'm I'm sure that that happened as well. But I'm I am also confident that I've seen reports that said like they were choosing not to. Um, could I pull that up right now uh, while we're wrapping up the show? Probably not. But if if you want to. If you want to continue that discussion, you know, I will gladly find. Uh, no, 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 no. That's, yeah. it's, it's, I, yeah, I mean, neither, I mean, I don't have the, 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 the data right with me anyway. Right. And I'm not disputing that because that what your reaction is totally what, you know, the economist would predict would happen. Right. Um, it just turns out that it was also the other side, right? Like the, the point being made in the articles that I read was that workers were not necessarily looking for more wages. Like, their living conditions were already adjusted to the amount of money that they had coming in. Right. It's not like they're like, Oh my God, I wish I had more money. Um, you know, to, to make ends meet, it was, Oh, I, I, now I can now make the same amount of money in half the time. I'm going to do more leisure things. Right. That was, that it, was part it, of it. It could also be this. Uh, if you're a worker who's got your hours cut, um, it doesn't necessarily mean they go off to the beach. It could be in Hawaii. It means you've taken up a second job to try and make up for the lost hours. Yeah. And, and, and all I'm saying is the articles that I read said that they were, they were picking up more leisure time they, because their hours weren't being cut. They were choosing to work less hours in order to have more leisure time. And the, 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 the point of the article was that they do not need more wages, right? Like it's, it's not like they were underpaid workers, and the evidence we have no. that they were not underpaid workers is that they were, they're choosing leisure time instead of higher pay. Okay, there's one other thing to take into consideration. If, if an employer, regardless of, you know, if the employer says, well, I'm going to hire people for less hours. Now, the, the, the study said that the overall worker was not getting any more money than before, but working fewer hours. What is working fewer hours to do the same work as before? That means you're working harder. You're covering for other people that used to be, you know, you, there used to be more workers doing it. Now there's fewer workers in at the shop. That means you're working a lot more intensely uh, to, to cover for those who didn't. And it also means a division between those with skills to, to operate the machinery and equipment that's going to be replacing workers. And the worker without the skills is, is most likely to get laid off. So yeah. instead of going to the beach, he has to go to a school to try and get the training uh, to fit him up higher, in the, and which means he has to pay tuition to that school, or somebody has to pay tuition. So there's a um, a lot of things that happen when you cut the hours. Yeah, and and again, from the articles that I read, um, those things could have happened later, but that was not the initial response to the wait to 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 the rise in wages, right? Because in that case, they could have chosen to stay and work the more hours if it was availed to them, right? But they were they were choosing they were choosing more leisure time, and that was the point. All right. Um, final thoughts, MC KS. Nope. Thanks. All right, that'll do it for us. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Any, any comment from Lee on the on the screen there? Uh, she's there. I, she did not raise her hand, so I don't. I did not. <laughs> okay. Well, now she wants oh. to say something. Real quickly, okay. you got the final. No, word. I don't want to. I don't want to say anything. Oh well, I'm then you shouldn't listening. have raised your hand then. All right, <laughs> it's good to hear your voice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good job, guys. 
All right, we'll move her back to the audience. That'll that'll wrap it up for us. You guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com on Telegram. Again, t.me slash anarchistexperience or t.me slash the anarchistexperience. And if you'd like to contribute to the show, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash the anarchistexperience. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Peace. Aloha.